Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today Cody Townsend and I are once again reviewing the news around the outdoor industry, as well as talking about some of the books and movies and shows that we've been checking out and that you might want to check out too. And if you want to cheat a little bit and see exactly what we're going to be talking about and when, you can always take a look at the topics and times notes that we publish along with each episode. So those are right there on your phone or on our website along with each episode, or you can just, you know, sit back and relax and dive right in. You've got options. Now, before we get started, just a quick heads up. This Thursday on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, we have a phenomenal conversation with the great Casey Brown. Now, Casey is a true pioneer in freeride mountain biking and a true visionary. And in our conversation, she talks about a number of things that she told me after she has never talked about before. Point is, nobody who is going to listen to my conversation with Cody here ought to miss that conversation with Casey. So subscribe to our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast so it'll be in your feed when it drops this Thursday. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation here with Mr. Townsend. Here we go. All right. Well, Cody, we are back again, a little late again. Which I blame you for. I'd like to blame you for because it turns out you're a busy man. You got 50 projects to do and places to be and, you know, it's all right. But uh, how are you? I will definitely accept that blame wholeheartedly. Um, yes, this time of year, and especially this year, has been insanely busy. Um, mainly insanely busy just chasing things, like chasing phantoms and trying to get lines done with in some of the weirdest weather I've ever seen. So it feels like I've been really busy, but we still haven't got a ton done with. But yeah, no, I am busy, um, which was just, I knew it was going to be the toughest part of this podcast. Um, we, we're definitely going to miss one month, unless I can record from the side of Mount St. Elias at some point in May or June. I think we're going to have to force to miss one month just to let the audience know. Um, I hope they can I hope they can understand. I can maybe tell a little bit when I come back. But yeah, busy guy. In the spirit of the 50 project, maybe I should like, I don't know, get on a bike and bike from Crested Butte. Come find you. We'll just record over like a little, you know, we'll record in person on a phone and then I'll just bike back. You know, that would that would be. Yeah, I probably won't do that, but I'll you know, I'll, I'll think about that a little bit. <laughs> think about that. No, I'm I'm the one that thinks of really dumb ideas like that and then tries to do them, <laughs> including which I won't go into right now, included my dumbest idea of mm. the 50 project, <laughs> which happened recently. Um yeah, no, I continually my I actually got a call from my wife during the middle of our really dumb idea. She's like, "You got to stop." <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You were you were in the middle of it and Elise called? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, actually, I called her because uh, I was at a I was at a pretty low spot right then, and uh, which when the video comes out, people will understand. And she's like, "You, you just gotta stop." I'm like, "Mm-hmm, you are correct." Yeah, you know, you you didn't marry stupid. No, I definitely did not. No, I don't know why I have this like infinite passion to try and make the 50 project even harder than it is. I don't know why, but I just keep thinking of the dumber, more hard versions of ways to do this. So, so yeah. I guess as a fan of the project, I'm glad you like doing dumb things. It's It makes for good entertainment and it makes our conversations fun. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you you keep it up. You do you. And don't don't listen to that smart wife of yours. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, it's a fair balance. Okay. I got to do a fair balance. I still, you know, maybe I'll just rein it in a little bit, but there's still, <laughs> I'm, it's in my nature to just try and think of the dumbest way to do things. Hmm. So Well, 
on that note, <laughs> perhaps we should review the news. Yeah. So where do you want us to start today? So looking at this last month, there's some interesting stories that popped up, obviously, um, like there is kind of every month and especially during the ski season. But this one was the kind of super interesting one. And it was uh, from the Seattle Times. It was covered by Outside as well. But um, lawsuits for triggering avalanches. And it was essentially two snowboarders that triggered an avalanche that I believe swept across the road or dusted the road. And then were subsequently, charges were pressed against them for for starting this avalanche. And obviously it starts to bring in this really interesting question of like legal liability. Like if you were to cut an avalanche and someone dies in that avalanche, are you legally responsible for that? Because those are the kind of precedents that could be set with this. So it's kind of like interesting because I don't know obviously the legal history of anything like this in America. Doesn't seem like there's been too many like this, especially when it comes to backcountry train. Yes, it was above public road. Um, so maybe there's some equation there. But more than anything, what I thought about was in our crazy legal world of America, it's kind of surprising this hasn't happened because this is actually normal in countries like Switzerland and Italy. You can be pressed charges for getting, for setting off an avalanche and be forced to pay for recovery fees and for rescue fees or have legal liability if you were to like, let's say you cut an avalanche and it goes across a, the piste and kills somebody, um, you would be held legally responsible for that, which, which is interesting that we don't have that precedent in America necessarily, but it does in Europe, where we all think of Europe as being just like completely free to do what you want in the mountains. I didn't know that about European law. Yeah, I actually, funny story, I had a buddy. I don't know exactly how it ended out, so I won't say his name, but cut, it, cut an avalanche, uh, I believe is in Switzerland, and uh, ended up being a pretty large avalanche, and it kind of dusted the piste, let's say. No one was underneath it. They even did a sweep of the avalanche with their their beacons and found no one was in it. Um, so they just moved on. Well, in that time frame, someone obviously witnessed it, called for rescue heli. Rescue heli goes up. Uh, rescue services go search the avalanche debris. My buddy and his crew are long gone by that point, but they go um, search for it. Cut to six months later, he gets a bill for $44,000 from the Swiss government to his home mailing address in America. Holy cow. And just, I don't know how, what happened from that. I don't know how he settled it. I don't know if he ended up paying it. Um, I'm assuring there was some sort of clearance because he's been back to Switzerland since then. But, um, but yeah, no, it's interesting that the that European countries have kind of laws and liability related to avalanches and cutting avalanches on, whether it's on peace or on infrastructure or another person. So what's your take on this? I mean, if you had to say, yes, this is reasonable and there should be the potential for prosecution if you set off an avalanche that results in the destruction of property or physical injury versus no man, it there should not be any such thing in the backcountry. So I look at it in the way of the unpredictability of avalanches. So like you're you're starting to, you know, base law on reckless behavior or sort of deviant behavior. And obviously with avalanches, it's a massive gray area when it comes to what is reckless behavior? What is deviant behavior? Uh, what was your intention and whatnot? So it's kind of like, to me, I feel like you shouldn't start doing stuff like this because the definition of what is reckless is so gray. Like many people think what I do could be deemed as reckless. And if I were to cut off an avalanche, a lot of people also that know me would say like, no, that guy's incredibly safe and does everything with a very intentional mindset to not cut an avalanche. But if I did happen to, most likely it'd be a mistake. And I get then there's like, yeah, you can have legal prosecution and liability for mistakes. But to me, it's just kind of a, you start to get into some weird territory. Whereas like, you know, even if you 
accidentally fire a gun on somebody, you can get manslaughter charges, of course. But to me, like with an avalanche, like you could be going out, it's low, moderate danger day, you're feeling good, you're skiing a mellow line with traffic, and all of a sudden the whole thing breaks takes out a like a house and an avalanche path or a, you know god forbid a, another party to be then held liable for that is like it's just kind of a weird weird state to start to put legal liability in whereas like i i get it like if you were reckless but where's that line of reckless you know like some people would say that's just being in the backcountry and then we start getting into some really murky territory so i hope personally it doesn't happen just for the reason that it could kind of, you know, pun intended, avalanche and snowball into something a little bit bigger that makes things a little bit worse for backcountry skiing. Okay, let me go devil's advocate here, because to be honest, I'm not even sure what my stance is on this. If you're going backcountry skiing and you're like, well... We're actually about to drop in and there are homes below or there is a road below or, you know, there is property below or another party below. If there is the chance that like, boy, if something goes wrong here, I mean, normally we spend our time thinking about in backcountry skiing, like if something goes wrong, this could end real badly for me personally or somebody in my own group. And so while I absolutely hate like litigious society stuff, again, and I'm, I'm thinking through this and we'll call this the devil's advocate point of view, but like if that gave more people pause to drop in, because I mean, I never am skiing above a road or like homes. So this sort of has like no real bearing, you know, where, where I happen to backcountry ski the most. If there are people that are like, well, I ski above homes or property all the time. Wouldn't that then be an added layer of like, I ought to be real, real confident in the stability of this snowpack. Yeah, no, there is that. I, and I think that's a great devil's advocate kind of argument, just playing that kind of like that card. And you're like, what is reckless behavior? You're skiing above a road that like comes close to I-70. You're like, maybe you just shouldn't ski that and there should be legal liability. But same time, you could do as the government does in Canada, which is like, you don't you, you don't allow people in there. So like on Rogers Pass, you you cannot ski a lot of the avi slopes that drain to the road um, because they'll blast them or because they're they'll they'll cut them. So you're like, well, just close them if you're really worried about that. Just don't allow backcountry skiing right there. Um, because then here's like the other devil's advocate thing. Let's say there is a party below you. Let's say all of a sudden we are in a society where there is liability related to cutting avalanches. You accidentally cut off an avalanche. You're doing everything in your power, not being reckless. Or it doesn't actually matter your intention, but you cut an avalanche off. It goes down. You see it overtake people. What do you? What are you going to do in that moment? Huh. Are you going to run Ooh, because you might go to jail? Death. Are you going to be like, let's get the f out of here because yeah, we might go jail or get sued to oblivion for the rest of our lives. So then you're going into this life saving kind of, you're like, cool, I'm not going to try and save that life or clear that avalanche path because I might be held legally responsible for that. So that's where it also just kind of thinking out loud when you were talking, I was like, that's where it all of a sudden you're like, no, we shouldn't have this. <laughs> that is a really good counter. Yeah. I think anytime we're incentivizing people to not go aid and give assistance, we probably want to think twice about, about the rule, but I win again, devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see your devil's advocacy and I raise it with this devil's advocacy. I don't know if devil's advocacy is actually a term anybody has ever used, but I didn't know what else to say there. And maybe I just invented that. No, I don't know. No, I hear devil's advocate all the time. I don't know. But, but devil's advocacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I see what you're saying. I think we need to talk about how this case wrapped up. Yeah, well, it did It did wrap up recently, which is hilarious because he was curious about the verdict and it was just that jury didn't show up. There, so they, decla they declared a mistrial. So our good old civics duty just failed. <laughs> Except here is what I sort of wondered or would kind of like to be true if it wasn't just like people blowing off jury duty. 
what if these people who were summoned were actually like, all right, this isn't great. They set off, you know, property was destroyed, but I don't want to prosecute these guys and I don't want these folks to get into trouble. So what if they didn't just not show up out of, you know, nonchalance or shirking of responsibility? What if it was a principled non-showing up so some civil disobedience yeah civil disobedience yeah i want to talk to those those non-showing juries (laughs) jurors like they're they're some county backcountry skiers that lied their way through it and then they're like yeah no we cannot do this that would be awesome they banded together they banded together and thought we do not want to see our fellow backcountry travelers convicted and so yeah, in an act of civil disobedience, they just didn't show, and there you go. That would be the best bow on the, the on the top of this story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, it's definitely interesting things to think about. I think maybe I'll just say in some, I am pretty much never going to try to like up the amount of litigation in this country, but I do think that, again, if at, at a minimum, if we're just like, oh, there's property or a group down there, Maybe I shouldn't drop in today or right now. And it's just another added layer of consideration and, you know, responsible behavior and responsible thinking. Yeah. And that's where we take the slow road of education. Education is always going to be slower and there's going to be mistakes, but we just, you know, continue to get out there. You know, you see the picture of it and you're kind of like, yeah, why were they kind of skiing right there? Maybe they shouldn't have done something like that. We like to get into the legal territory seems a little excessive at this point. All right. Moving on. I guess this maybe falls somewhat into our like skiing etiquette conversation. You know, last last time we talked a bit about whether it's okay to leave skis in a lift line. I don't know. Today we're talking about <laughs> straight lining versus turning. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I kind of feel like this, you know, we review in the news, but we're all just like it's almost like five big things in in outdoors and skiing, and this is one of them. And it was an op-ed piece by Patty O'Connell. Um, I shortly after it declared war on him, so you probably know my take on this already. Um, he wrote a piece uh, in Ski Mag. It was straight lining versus turning, and wrote it from the point of view of himself, watching some kid, some young guy, just straight lining a mogul field, and then you know going about the art of the turn and how skiing is meant to turn and whatnot and kind of just wrote an op-ed a piece around that. And there's, if people know me, they probably know why I said I declare war on them because probably the thing I'm most famous for is going quite straight down something. Um, and I was a very big fan of going straight. So yeah, straight lining versus turning. Um, we've probably already devolved my opinion, but it's probably a little bit different than people think. But uh, um, one of those kind of like op-ed pieces that I think is meant to incite a little bit of debate. So uh, yeah, your your take, straight lining or turning or like, can you value, can you value the art of the straight line? Absolutely. And I mean, in the way that I can value the art of the turn, but, and so I, first of all, I love Patty. He's great. This is, he's a wonderful, he's a wonderful writer. This is a well-written piece. I completely reject the argument here. I think there are times to do both and there is an art to doing both. You know, I think also certain terrain, certain ski areas and the like lend themselves to different types of skiing and both can be done beautifully by the way shots fired at you given that you know what you're known for they're the line about how you must be a terrible in bed yeah totally I was like dude that was why i declared war patty's coming strong totally no it was i was like did was you what were you talking about patty and how do you know how good i am in bed <laughs> Well, that's probably Patty's next op-ed piece is how he knows about you in bed. But no, I'll reiterate, I love Patty too. He's one of my favorite writers. He's such a great human and I'm glad he's in the ski industry. But um, but yeah, no, it was definitely kind of, I got tagged in it multiple times. Ah, got it. I was like, (laughs) oh, so great. This is kind of me. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, I am in the same boat. I love turning and i love the art of the turn and i feel like it's something you cannot perfect and you can continually work on your entire life um in fact like one of the things i really like 
about snowboard culture in the last few years has been a lot of media and a lot of like stories and videos about just turning and turning in a creative way and just like kind of this art of the turn thing. And I'm like, wait, why do we not have that in skiing? Um, I think I sort of know it's been you know, free skiing was such a rebellion against racing to start with. Um, and then carving is such like it's unique, like veil style mentality of groomers and whatnot. But I kind of I'm like, I want to champion skiing to like take that back and free skiing to take that back, because what you do a majority of the time is turn and you can do it in such a way where I've been enjoying getting out on my stance skis this year and just like ripping groomers. I'm like, this is so fun. But I will say, straight lining shit is badass. And it is like, if you're straight lining like the light towers at Squaw, which is, you know, 45 to a little bit of 50 degree, it's probably about 800 to 1,000 feet long, and then runs into like mogul field. Like, we used to do straight line challenges with your buddies, and who could straight line as far down it as possible and it is as burly as it gets and the consequences get high and it is something that i think we should celebrate because it is rad (laughs) yeah all right so maybe in some our position is nice article patty but we're here to defend both styles yes. rather than rule one out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he just ruled one out. He was just like, yeah, straight lining's lame, which was a very old. I was like, Patty, you're getting old, dude. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like I don't really straight line anymore because I know I'm going to like explode like 12 bones and like four ligaments if I do that and these days. So, uh, but I, through my era of straight lining, I'm like, Oof, those were, that was so fun. <laughs> All right. Where are we going next? Um, this was an article you sent and it came in just the absolute best timing. You, you sent me this, um, from, and it was just that it actually wasn't even necessarily uh, an article that spawned it. It was just like most ski areas in the U S have made it through without shutting down because of COVID, like, which is a minor miracle. And you really think about it of the questions that were going into the sea season and most of them are are doing good. And there was early data that you know, we spoke about on this show saying that there wasn't tying COVID break outbreaks to ski areas and everything was handling it really well. There was a, you know, northern Idaho there we talked about that of some up uh, you know, some and Schweitzer people being dicks to ski to patrol and staff and you know, mask mandates. But for the most part, everyone was super well behaved. Yeah, everything went great. You said that to me, and then literally it was like two hours later, we got the news that Whistler shut down for the season. We're like, oh, well, it's not in America. Um, We were maybe talking about American ski resorts. So, yeah, most ski areas made it through. And then now Whistler is being tied to the largest outbreak of the Brazilian variant of COVID outside of Brazil. So, yeah, so... Whistler's potentially different. Maybe there was different rules. Maybe people were indoors more. I don't know. But yeah, all of a sudden they shut Whistler down, forced by the BC government because they were showing such a massive outbreak in the area, which which sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still surprised, impressed that at least in this country, the vast, vast, vast majority of places were able to operate without interruption, you know, in terms of ski areas. Lou Kappa and I have talked about it repeatedly on Gear 30, but just from the the mental health aspect of that and being able to break out and go do that and get to link up with friends and be outside and doing what we love. Again, shout out to every single ski area operator and every person, and I'm sure there are countless people and in countless different professions that I'm completely unaware of that sort of helped the collective of ski areas keep operations going. And, and I think in large part, you know, while we, while we have had, you know, we see in like the mainstream media, certain states where it's like kind of out there acting like COVID never happened or anything. I haven't heard a single story, which is not to say it doesn't, hasn't happened anywhere, but that hasn't been part of like, the ski news, right? Like certain areas where no one is complying or like they're, they're being, you know, jerks ongoing about 
trying to maintain a distance or wearing a stupid mask or whatever. And, um, I don't know, like we, we got through a year of this. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing that we've gotten through a year with it. And like you said, that it's almost been scary as haven't been making major news like they were a full year ago in March when all of a sudden it was like, oh, it was Sun Valley. Oh, it was this resort in Austria. Oh, it was Eagle County in Colorado where these massive outbreaks were happening. So so to have that completely reversed is is awesome. Um, I will say it's interesting, too, when you think about like Whistler, um, the fact that also like France never opened, uh, Switz Switzerland opened, um, Austria was open to some locals, Italy still never opened. So, but what I will say is like, our all in on vaccination kind of worked. And obviously in a way that we would have been better off if we actually obeyed rules and people wore masks and people weren't being idiots about it. We all, we all know that, but like for the most part, like vaccinations are working because you look at like America, we're not reporting massive outbreaks anymore. Sure. There's one up in Michigan right now. Um, but the same goes with Britain. Um, there's not massive outbreaks anymore. And they just, I think they were reported seven COVID deaths yesterday. So those are the two most vaccinated countries, uh, major countries in the world being America and the, and the UK. So that also gives us more hope that we are truly returning back to normal here soon. Um, uh, that, you know, there's finally light at the end of the tunnel. Cause like I even catch myself, I think with skiing, it's been felt so normal to be outside and being at ski resorts and whatnot. I'll like get out of my van to walk into somewhere. I'm like, Oh yeah. Mask. Like, cause you're starting to get feels so normal again and you're like oh no we're, we're still in it but um uh kudos to skiing and skiers and ski areas for for the most part getting through this whole season well sticking with the topic of ski areas you brought to my attention this article in the colorado sun by jason blevins why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about this article yeah, so our old Blevins Corner, always sticking up the best, most interesting stories, in my opinion. Um, so this one was pretty fascinating, but it essentially was that there's been a Colorado state law introduced by state legislators to publish, uh, for ski areas, to publish injury and death statistics. So publicly report those or report those to the state or a regulatory body uh, or some sort, which my first reaction was, I didn't know they didn't already do that. It feels like, you know, if you're a major company and people are dying and being hurt, you'd probably report that. So it was pretty interesting to know that, one, they're not reporting this to begin with. Two, there's a history to this. Uh, this kind of similar law was passed by the legislature in California and was vetoed by Schwarzenegger when we had the the governor um, as our governor. And... And yeah, so the, and the ski industry obviously pushed back and fought against it. So pretty interesting topic because I, well, I'm in the same boat. I don't know exactly what side to lean on because there's one part of it that are like, yeah, like a nanny state stepping in to report data to potentially crack down on things happening at ski areas. But for the most part, we as skiers know there's not much like... Not many deaths that are related to infrastructure, you know, safety protocols, inbound avalanches. Sure, those occasionally happen, but the they're so rare they make major news. And things that like are preventable by the ski area. Majority of the injuries and the ones they talk about in the article are just from the act of skiing. It's just like skiing's you're going fast and you're on a hard slope and there's trees and you can fall down and you can hurt yourself. So it's like just the nature of the sport. So I don't see necessarily the value in reporting these if it's going to lead to more restrictions. But at the same time, you're also like, well, I maybe we should report these. It would be good data to know. Like it would be like how many knee injuries are happening per year, how many head injuries are happening per year. And then they bring that up in the article of being like, just knowing this stuff, we can develop more safety protocols, whether that's for manufacturers or, or just for the basic knowledge of individuals to know like, Hey, if our family's going skiing, we have 2.1% chance of going to the hospital this weekend. So uh, yeah, it was kind of an interesting topic. I don't know what you kind of think about it. The Blevins article kind of kicks off with a story about, you know, a 
beginner skier and you know they went off onto another run and one of the quotes is from um from someone that this person was with who got injured was the quote was well we didn't know how difficult the run would be and i mean that kind of comes back to you know we talk a lot on blister about like know thyself normally we're talking about that in the context of gear you know or do you really need a 140 flex boot or do you really need the stiffest ski out there but i mean there are all these signs on all these runs everywhere that are blue and green and black etc and pretty much every ski area i've ever been to in the united states has that stuff very clearly marked and so I guess I'm not that tempted to like put that back on ski areas. If you're like, look, I'm not very experienced at this. And you're like, I'm sure I'm fine, you know, (laughs) riding the T-bar at Crested Butte up to the North Face, you know, or getting on the high lift. It's like, again, we're kind of personal responsibility has kind of been an ongoing theme of this particular conversation, I guess. But so I don't know. On the one hand, I'm not mad if ski areas have to start reporting the rates of injuries, but mostly where I'm at is like, yeah, if you're unaware that accidents can happen when skiing, I don't really know what to tell you. And furthermore, if you're like, I'm going to go venture off onto a trail that I'm not sure I'm ready for, to me, that's more of a your problem than anything bad that a ski area or anything um, irresponsible that a ski area is doing. Yeah, I mean, you already look at, you go ski in Europe and you look at the difference in signage between and roping and fencing that American ski resorts go through to let every single person know that this is a dangerous run. Every run is marked, every run is labeled, every run has a... Uh, label that says how difficult it is it's like okay like what else can you really do other than like have a person on top of the line and say like no you're not allowed to go here and whatever and like you're like okay we're starting to get a little bit overboard and we do have to have some sort of personal responsibility i mean it's like personally like the french model of just like hey you went to go and see the mountains hey you're on your you're on your own you die you die and that's kind of you know the way you know I feel like obviously skiing is more approachable when you make it a little bit more safe and uh, allow for people to understand where they're going. Um, But at the same time, you're like, yeah, it's on you, man. Like you want to go ski off the top of the Degita Midi. You got to walk down that freaking arete, that icy ass arete, and then ski down a glacier if you want to go down the the most mellow slope. And you might fall in a crevasse and die, but that's on you, man. Uh, You, you do you. So when I, when I hear about this and obviously the story of the, the kid that ended up dying of it you're like yeah there was probably some steps that could have been done maybe on the medical side and the the patroller side that to to potentially save this um poor kid's life but when it comes to like would safety statistics help like mitigate this i i don't know like i that's where you're kind of like creating laws just to create laws and is it going to do much but at the same time i'm also like i, I i'd be personally curious and i think it's not necessarily been a a downside to publish data and statistics of injuries from ski resorts. Like I can see why skiers want to guard that because they probably want to guard themselves from any sort of crackdowns, any sort of more uh, legal liabilities. But you know, like that, that's, you're kind of like looking at this, like what kind of door does this open for the legal side? What kind of door does this open for potentially even restricting more ski areas or what does this do in terms of just helping make people safety so it's like what is the intentions of it that's almost what you really want to know and what could what what in pandora's box is going to come out of this if we put this out there um i'm i'm torn i'm like partly like yeah let's go for it partly like well what are you going to do with that data like are we closing down ski areas because you want to make them uh like disneyland but uh, yeah it's a it's a tough one I think this is something that for those of us who are passionate about skiing and or mountain biking and or any number of other activities, I mean, part of it is about risk and part of it is about the ability to challenge ourselves or to try something where we're a little bit outside of our comfort zone. And, you know, 
maybe this is a platitude, but maybe it's actually worth saying from time to time or just reminding ourselves. It's like, if the idea is to take all risk out of human existence, well, one, I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that. And we talk, you and I have talked a lot on various podcasts. This is a massive conversation across all of these different sports and activities, but we talk about calculated risks and we talk about getting educated. And then guess what? Stuff still happens in the world and things go wrong and people get hurt. And that's a fact of human existence. Again, if that sounds like a platitude, I apologize, but I think I can speak for a number of us who it's like, that's part of the reason why we still go ski. That's part of the reason why we still go mountain bike. If we didn't accept certain risks, if we weren't interested in sort of pushing ourselves a bit, then we could just go walking, right? Except even walking, like a tree can fall on you or a bear can eat you. So I, I don't know. And I think that every society, every society has to like think through this and figure out its own level of acceptable risks and not all societies are the same but here we are folks and in a way it's nothing new yeah and i mean this is like the debate we're kind of talking about is like the the debate that drives so many like sci-fi movies and whatnot where you know like it's the future all things are perfect your life is perfectly manicured and i'm like thinking about i'm trying to remember what exact movie it is but everything is perfect and yet there's still like the one re- Rebellion that just like re- rebels against that because they want risk, they want danger, they don't want life to be perfectly manicured, and it goes into this like sometimes there is this inherent need for I don't know the unknown, mystery, risk. I don't know exactly what it is, but it is the central thesis of a lot of like philosophical books and movies and sci-fi books and movies. So we we get into a deeper debate about it, and like yeah, I mean we as skiers probably know our answer. Like yeah. I've, I, I wouldn't want to ski without risk. Like, like I, I just, I don't know if there's something inherently attractive to working your way through risk and working your way through fear. So sure, the consequences of it can be the worst of consequences, but that's kind of part, a little part of the allure of why we do it. All right. Well, on the heels of that discussion of risk, we've got one more story here about a recent helicopter crash in Alaska. Tell us about this. So I did make pretty major news, worldwide global news, but there was a helicopter crash in north of Palmer in the northern Chugach Mountains, um, kind of almost in the Talkeetnas, that killed five people and there was one survivor from it. This kind of rocketed through global news because of the fact the richest man in the Czech Republic was one of the among that died. Um, he was a pretty beloved figure, like uh, investor and tech kind of guy. Um, and But it was also made a lot of ski news because of the fact that two of the people killed in it were pretty beloved within the ski industry, being that Greg Harms, who's pretty legendary uh, Alaskan heli-ski guide, uh, Chilean heli-ski guide, just a guide. Um, he based himself in Aspen, but was up in Alaska, was kind of a pioneer of it larger than life personality just the mythology of of harms which is like he had this mythology that like was bigger than him and he is a giant guy he's like 6'5 240 pound redhead sleeve tattoos and the like the most ice blue eyes it looks like he's like a white walker and he like looks straight through you and you're just like oh my god this guy's so intimidating and like there's a story that has been verified as multiple times true of one of his clients being caught in an avalanche, him skiing into the avalanche, grabbing him by the jacket and dragging him out of the avalanche. And you're like, you bullshit. But if anyone could do it, Harms could do it. And multiple people that were there was like, yeah, I was on. It was crazy. <laughs> like, it was so like... Harms was a very beloved figure. And then another guy, Sean McManamy, who was a Girdwood local, grew up in Alaska, guided a lot of us, kind of like a younger guy, was an understudy to, to Harms. He was unfortunately killed as well. So the, the Alaska guide community, ski community was definitely pretty hit hard by that. There's not much to really say among that other than 
talking about just more like helicopter crashes. And to me and heli skiing, I'm actually pretty surprised they don't happen more frequently because well, heli skiing, like we think about how gnarly it is on the mountain, being in Alaska, skiing in a steep line, going over crevasses, bergstrons. It's a, as dangerous as it gets. And it's the pinnacle of, of skiing for a lot of skiers. But you kind of factor out, like you're flying around in this like tin can, like to the point where like, I mean, I remember my first time in a heli and they're like, just don't touch the the heli with your ski boots. I'm like, why? And they're like, we could dent it. And you're like, and you kind of feel the metal and you're like, oh my God, this is like an aluminum can. And then it's got an 800 horsepower jet engine on the top of it. And you're like, and it, it can balance on a dime. And the way you steer it is with your like pointer finger and your thumb gripping onto the collect, onto the collective or not the collective, but the, the joystick, whatever it's called. And you're like, these things are insane. And I've been in multiple situations where I've been like early on in my career, it was definitely, you're like so gripped being in the heli towing in on these super knife edge ridge lines. And you're like, Jesus Christ, this is so intimidating. You know, you got your, you've got one corner of one skid hanging on a ridge line that is narrower than my van table. And it's just touched down and you got to crawl out the skid to get onto the snow and underneath where you're sitting is 500 foot drop, but you're, you know, where the skid is, is ground. And you're just like, it's like so nerve wracking. And then I've gotten to a point where you're like, oh, I flew around in helicopters and up. You start like just being pretty confident about it. And then there was one time I was in Alaska, Chugach Powder Guides. We had a pretty heavy load, a lot of camera gear. We'd just taken off, so full fuel load. And we kind of landed, we were in a B2, so not as powerful as a B3. And we got up to this kind of higher peak and we sat down for a, um, a tow-in. Same sort of situation, just like hanging out there, full power. And we all have headsets on. Most heli-ski clients don't have headsets on, so but we do as professional skiers so we can all communicate with each other. And I hear the pilot go, shit. And when your pilot says shit, you will shit. <laughs> like literally, like I was just, my heart dropped from underneath me. Cause you're like, oh, we're about to die. And like all of a sudden our guides are like, okay, everyone get out of the helicopter slowly and smoothly. And, you know, trying to just inch your way along. And meanwhile, there's just blade, blade spinning above you going this faster than the speed of sound. It's freaking intense. And your pilot just said, shit. We end up getting off of the off the, the run. We skied our run. We get back down. And the pilot was like so apologetic. He's like, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. But we got to 110% on our collective being the power. And after seven seconds at 110%, the engine flames out. And we got there. And all of a sudden, I was able to get it down to 102%. But I couldn't take back off again. I couldn't pull back up. So we that's why we all had to exit the heli so we could make the heli lighter so we could actually take back off again. Um, so there's these moments I've had where you're like, yeah, being around these things is insanely dangerous. But for the amount of times we do that, the amount of times there's landings, the tens of thousands of helicopter landings in similar situations, the fact that we don't have more heli crashes is pretty impressive. And it shows the one, the quality of guides, the quality of the helicopters and the quality of the pilots and a lot of safety goes into it. So that's what kind of made this even more of a tragedy in so many ways. Cause we, I feel like we've kind of forgot about the fact that like, yeah, being in the heli is a, is a dangerous factor, but ultimately they are actually quite safe. I think I'll just say we're so sorry for the lives that were lost and for the people the many, many people who were affected by this, your conclusion still stands in terms of the infrequency of these ac accidents. Uh, again, it's kind of been the theme of this podcast. Uh, things happen and we need to make good decisions and there is risk in life and, you know, be wide eyed about that. It is still the case that so many of us like will unthinkingly hop in our cars and head over to the grocery store or something. And it's like, well, things can happen there too. So if the idea is, or if the temptation is to just remove all risk from life, I don't know what to tell you. And we all get to, you know, calculate our risk a bit differently, 
But just because you're like, well, I'm never getting in a heli, so I'm smarter than all of you folks. It's like, well, I sure hope your next drive to the grocery store goes okay. Totally. And I'd be like, sweet, more heli time for me. Because <laughs> it's the some of the greatest runs I've ever had in my life or via a helicopter. And yeah, no, it's just kind of the risk we take. And, you know, the fact is that it was... It is rare. I mean, the safest aircraft in the world is a Bell 207. Um, there's the least amount of fatalities for the amount of flight hours that they have. Like, they're inc- helicopters can be incredibly safe. What we do in heli skiing definitely isn't as safe, you know? Um, you, the whole thing with helis is if you have forward airspeed, you can pretty much auto-rotate. Um, if you have enough ground above you, if you're high enough... If you have an engine flame out, you can auto rotate. You can the engines can go off, and you'll be able to land smoothly and softly. I've done it before. I asked a pilot once. I was like, "What does it feel like to auto rotate?" And he just immediately, within a half second, turned off the whole engine. I was like, "Oh, okay, we're going." And it was the most mellow thing ever. We just like didn't even feel like we were dropping. We just slowly we cruised for like two, three miles. He went and flared, landed. Perfect. I was like, oh, that was super mellow. But when you're coming into heli skiing, yeah, you put yourself in, you know, a lot of landings and landings in tight situations, whether that's um, your landing zone or your pickup zone. And, you know, those are, that is kind of the factor. So um, I think that's why, that's why I felt such a, it was so shocking because it just doesn't really happen. I mean, the article in Outside that I referenced that Mark Peruzzi did um, talked about like the last heli ski crash was in 1988, was it? I'd, I actually have to look it back up uh, real quick. I'll, I'll get back to you on that, get IT on it. You know, it is relatively safe when it comes to the heli side of it. It's still the more dangerous factor is the actual skiing and the actual potential for avalanches and whatnot. So, so yeah, um, bummer to lose those guys. I will say I'll, I'll end it on a happier note um, because it's still a tragedy. I feel for harms his family i feel for sean's family pretty much everyone's family that was involved in it It always sucks but harms would probably laugh about it and he's probably would if he's somewhere right now he probably laughed about it because of one thing he would always his saying was don't kill the bill which was don't kill the billionaire and if i could see it right now i would tell him like dude you fucking killed the bill, man. You, you killed the billionaire. What are you doing? Um, and it was just a, always a joke that those guys had of being like, yeah, these are where a majority of our income comes from. We're ultimately ski bombs at heart, just making our uh, not even a great living, but a barely decent living to to be a guide and do what we love. And we we rely on these very, very rich people to to make that happen. So that's where I have it kind of, I guarantee somewhere Harms kind of had a little chuckle to himself. Well, hey, let's wrap up this episode with our standard media recommendations. Has it been four or five or six weeks since we last recorded one of these? So like we've some time has passed. What do you got? Yeah, I've got a couple things I've been able to kind of read while I'm on the road a little bit and watch just binge watch a little bit here and there while I'm going to sleep. So uh, the show that I just watched, which I thought was unbelievable, super, super well done was zero, zero, zero on Amazon Prime. And like, I'm again, like, I'm such a fiend. We've talked about bank robbery movies and whatnot, but for anything cartel drug related, I will watch all of it. Um, and zero, zero, zero was like, was that it's obviously it's just, it's about tracking one single shipment from Monterey, Mexico to to Italy and all the various factions and the brokers and the cartels and the gangs and just it's one little microcosm and it was a really good twist on that kind of story and uh, they did a great job on it and I thought it the scenery was amazing the freaking the cinematography was amazing the acting was amazing it was a really really well done show did you watch that you know I started it and then I got some months ago sucked into the stronger and stronger vortex of the blister summit where like all sleep and any spare time was just absolutely gone so i think i watched the first two episodes and it was excellent and then i got kind of you know derailed but i will i will go back and and finish it up but that's interesting and cool to hear you say that you felt like it you know was kind of good at the beginning and and managed to finish strong as well finished super strong yeah i thought it was i thought it was great one of those series that's like 
Well, actually, it might have a sequel. They did leave it out, but it almost feels like that was a six-part miniseries that just like that was a good story. Don't don't do anything more with that. <laughs> but I, I could actually see they did kind of leave a little nugget that maybe will make it a, a second season of it. I could see. So, um, would you would you watch? Yeah, the thing that has really made the the biggest impression on me is this little. I think it's a five episode series that was on or currently is on HBO Max called Beartown or Bjarnstad. And it's about a tiny little kind of hockey obsessed town in Sweden. It's really sort of stuck with me for a number of reasons, I suppose, randomly and not the most important reason, but the soundtrack for this show is unbelievable it is this like really subtle kind of delicate background music and soundtrack and it is just haunting and amazing to me so there's one random tidbit the other thing i think for any of us who have lived in small towns and perhaps a step further like kind of small mountain towns this show gets to the heart of some small town dynamics that um while while the show you know it it takes a dark turn for sure like Cody I think if if and when you watch this I think you'll understand exactly what I mean but I think for those who are either very familiar and have lived in small towns for a while or those who never have the way this show lays out and portrays the kind of interpersonal dynamics and how what might be a seemingly simple issue on the one hand becomes wildly complicated when all the players in the town know every single other player extremely well and many people wear multiple hats in that particular community this show just gets to the heart of the complexities of any probably small community. I, I want to be a little bit like appropriately vague, I think, but I would really encourage people to check this out. And I'll be curious to hear what you think of it too. Yeah, no, you're not the first person to recommend it. My only thing is HBO Max is like the only app. Like I watch all my stuff. I pre-download it and like watch it in my van when I'm going to sleep. So like Netflix, you can download uh, Amazon Prime, you can download and then you can watch them and delete them. HBO Max doesn't let you do that. Still the one app. So it's like my HBO consumption is very, very low compared to everything else because I, I mainly watch my stuff when I'm on airplanes or I'm going to bed in my van. So it's I'm like, come on, get with it, HBO. <laughs> I'll actually watch your stuff because you do make good stuff. But yeah, I do want to watch that at some point. So yeah. And if, and if you were like, yeah, dude, I was not into that in a way that wouldn't surprise me either. People are going to have different different takes on this one, I think, for sure. And, and that's fine. And I, I would understand if some people were like, yeah, I, I was not into that show. But um, I'm putting it out there to the world. We'll see what people think, in, including you. By the way, have you ever got around to watching the one thing that I've been adamant that you and Elise need to watch? Oh, yeah, Friday Night Lights. Yes. No, we still haven't watched Mike, it. I got to watch it. What is happening here? Like well, this this summer, well, we can get on this summer. Come okay, on, easy, easy. All right, <laughs> I, I've been banging this drum for a while. I need. Yeah. I, admittedly, this will definitely bum me out if you both come back and are like, "Dude, that was stupid." Yeah. But you know, I, I you know, give me your honest take if and when you ever get around to it. But as football fans, I think you guys. I know. I, it's just sitting there waiting for you. Yeah, we we'll watch it. We're both diehard football fans, so I'll put it on our list. I'll, I'll remind her that because when we go home, we have our kind of one tour shows. Like the other, I mean, I could have talked about Netflix Drive to Survive, which is the greatest marketing tool slash behind the scenes sports show that there is, like by far. I don't have you know. I've never heard of it. What? Get. <laughs> With the frickin' program, dude. You you want to start watching every F1 race in the world, watch Drive to Survive because it is so good. Huh. Um, I used to be, like, when I was young, 18, I've definitely watched a lot of Formula One, was super into it, fell out of love with it, started watching to Drive to Survive, got Elise into it. We literally record and watch every single F1 race now. It is that, because it just, like... 
it's that show. It's hard knocks, but from Formula One. It shows all the personality. You get to know the drama, the storylines, the people that are in the car. Not just watch cars zoom around. You actually know, like, oh, this guy's fighting for third place. That that, and honestly winning isn't necessarily what everyone's goal is because that's not necessarily the case you know being third place is huge for certain teams because they're able to survive and make money and actually continue and get better so it's like it's such a good show um yeah there's been like a huge like increase in formula one viewership in america specifically because of the show yeah it's so good so so yeah that's an that's another one i well i'm gonna refuse to watch this until you until watch, watch friday okay. night lights so i'm gonna yeah i will not be watching okay. this show by the way to clarify for people i am specifically talking about friday night lights the tv show not the movie the movie is really well done i think the tv show is even better so just to clarify because this has been like my mission for, I don't know, five years now or more is to try to get everybody I know to watch this. It's a weird thing, I realize. But anyway, I like I like your tactics. I like it. All right. What else you got? Uh, so I recently read uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. So uh, oh, just a little backstory over the last like few years. And this really started from meeting Connor Ryan and Len Nessifer. Uh Len Nessifer is, uh, well, I think he's retired. Uh, quitting, but he's a professor of Native American studies at University of Arizona. He's a skier. He is founder of Native Outdoors, um, and he's an activist, obviously, for for Native, you know, Native peoples, Native uh, tribal lands, all that kind of stuff. Um, when I skied with him and Connor Ryan for the Mount Takanakovitz episode, I'd like all of a sudden started diving into a world of Native American knowledge that I had no knowledge about. Like we as Kids in America, we like read a chapter in our book that's like, yeah, we didn't treat Native Americans very well. We took all their land. And then that's kind of about it. And so in the last like year and a half, I was really been diving into a lot of just Native American history books. Um, so this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, it's by um, Robin Wall Kimmer. Um, she's a botanist, um, like a PhD in botany, and then she's also Native American. So she grew up with two deaf, very almost knowledge different knowledges and separate knowledges of land of nature and whatnot and she she uses her studies in botany uh, along with her native american culture to kind of like explain so much more about our natural world and our interactions as humans to our environment the plants land everything in such a powerful way. And it came, kind of gave me more context to a lot of these really great conversations I've had with Connor um, when we're talking about gratefulness for mountains, about, um, you know, acting, like treating the mountains as if, you know, there's a lot of holy mountains in a lot of Native American tribes. And, you know, he was, Connor would tell me about how they have, like, they, you know, they're spiritual, but they're not necessarily like a living thing, but they are something you connect with. And in this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she does just a, such a great job of kind of like articulating how that works in Native American culture and how that kind of relates to us in our modern day. And it is just a really, really powerful book. I connected with it because there's so many things in skiing, like we talk about how fun it is and how great it is and uh, peaceful and whatnot. But there's certain things when I've been in the mountains, I'm like, there's something more here. And I feel like there's this like almost missing spirituality that I kind of feel sometimes when you're out in the mountains. And a lot of that is answered in a lot of Native American culture and mythology and religion. And Braiding Sweetgrass really articulates out really well. So uh, I, I think if you, if you love nature, if you love the mountains, you love being a part of it, you feel that connection, you have to read this book. It's really, really well done. Interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I think my book recommendation, I actually talked about this on our last reviewing the news conversation, but I had mentioned this book by Bill Gates, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And I have been, I've actually been listening to it. I've been listening to it as an audiobook. Yeah, I, I'm not done. I don't, so I don't have a kind of final opinion about it. But what I can say is, you know, not surprisingly, I mean, I don't know that anybody would argue that Bill Gates 
isn't one of the brightest minds of the modern era, at least. And he has access to literally every expert on the planet that he sort of feels like talking to. And so I know, Cody, when we last talked about this, you're like, well, you know, I don't really care so much about Bill's particular opinion, but I'm, you know, I'm curious about sort of how he's synthesizing some of these issues. And, you know, I think on the one hand, um, you know, well, Gates is just a really smart person, but two, he has talked to sort of every expert in the field. And so that is what he's doing here. Again, I don't, I don't have, I don't know where this all goes, but I think for people who would like to get a good handle on the various pros and cons and different attempts to mitigate a climate disaster, this has been an interesting guide and resource. And I don't know enough to know if there is clearly five other books that, you know, you would be better off reading than this one. But um, so far, this has felt like a pretty good state of the union on things. So I'm going to get this book for you just to force you to kind of like go along this road with me a bit. Are you an audiobook guy or are you like, yeah, sh- you are. Okay. Yeah. No, in the, in the winter, especially like, like I'm mainly listening to audiobooks. I have kind of like two books I'm reading that are behind me, but then when I'm driving, I'll just listen to a book. That was like braiding sweetgrass. I listened to it. I didn't necessarily read it, but I actually want to kind of get a copy of it to have it. Cause I want to look back at it. But uh, no, I love, I, I'm a, big fan of audiobooks because it's all about that like secondary like if i'm driving for 10 hours just middle of nowhere it'll might as well be learning something (laughs) brendan leonard recently like took me to task i think on an off the couch podcast we were doing because there is still i have like a bit of a weird thing that sometimes i feel bad if i'm not sitting in a chair reading a physical book totally I was talking to Brendan about, I forget what book we were talking about, but I was like, well, you know, I, I, I only listened, I only listened to it. I didn't sit down with it. And he's like, how dare you? And he, he thought I was, he thought I was sort of, um, being, uh, dismissive of the genre of the audiobook. And I don't mean to, I just think that I have a weird thing in my own history where like, frankly, during my undergrad days and grad school days, I just got used to a pattern like when I was really, really intensely, quote unquote, reading, I had a pen in one hand and a little ruler in the other hand. And that was like this weird discipline thing that I established. But I, I love audiobooks, and And there are certain things that I just maybe can't process as well if it's being if I'm listening to it. But for many, many, many books, I think they work really well as audiobooks, And I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. So and I so far, I feel like you know, how to avoid a climate disaster is working well as an audiobook. So I, I will get you that one and uh, you can listen to it at your own leisure. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, I, there is a stigmatism to, uh, to audiobooks. I feel like, you know, I say like, oh, I read Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh no, I listened to it. You know, there's this weird thing and I, I even feel it. I'm like, oh, no, it's about the, the art of sitting down with a book and really reading it. And I do think there's certain times you can absorb a little bit better information, but also like, you crank out a book by listening to it on a long drive and I'm getting the gist of it. And if I really, I'll do the same thing though. If I like with Brady's Wheatgrass, I actually do want a copy of it because there's some certain things I want to go back on and read another chapter again. And I'll just go find a used copy on Amazon for like $2 and go order it, you know, then, then I'll have it. So that's the way I kind of feel about it. Cause there's certain books I've listened to that you're like, cool, that was great. That was entertaining. Or I learned that, but I don't need to go back at it and I don't need to have this in my bookshelf. So yeah, there, I, I think I, maybe it's being stripped down. I actually listened to a podcast with a very successful person that was like, yeah, I read 55 books a year. Well, I listened to them and was talking about just driving every day to work and listening to books. And you're like, yeah, what's the difference? You're still getting the information. You're still getting the learning. So, so yeah, cool. I think we're, uh, are we, uh, are we wrapped up? Is that, are, are we ending on book, the value of book versus reading versus listening? I think we are. And yeah. it's a, it's a great conversation. And I mean, I guess we're not done. Cause I still kind of want to say this is like, you know, it was the case that formerly, you know, in some of the most ancient forms of quote unquote reading, like 
books were read aloud manuscripts were read aloud there weren't like literacy was a privileged uh skill and so in a way i'm like i love that audiobooks are in a way taking us back to what is actually a more ancient and perhaps more common practice of you know we would sit down and we would be read too by the few people who could read manuscripts. And so just come in, I guess, in a weird full circle way. Everybody, anybody who else is like, dude, you guys are weird. And like audiobooks <laughs> have always been great. And what are you doing? It's like, hey, I don't know. I think that's why we, we do this podcast because we're weird. And we oh, hit right. off There's talking that. about weird, <laughs> weird shit the whole time. So, and we're just hoping that other people will listen to us be weird and ramble about dumb stuff and mm. try and make big grand arguments and stuff, but we're just, I don't know. Ultimately, we're just you and I bullshitting for a podcast. <laughs> well, on that note, people, Cody and I would like to thank you if you uh, are a fellow traveler of weird shit, to quote Cody. Yeah, it's always fun doing these and, and catching up and, and getting your perspective on things. So thank you. And I understand you have a, you know, you've got a fairly big day tomorrow. Yeah, I got a, got, got a line to ski tomorrow. So hopefully get get one done. Just keep keep ticking them off, even though it's been very hard to tick off this year, but get back to it tomorrow. Well, all the best. Be safe out there. Look forward to connecting the next time, man. Sounds great. Good to talk to you, Jonathan. All right. Take care. See ya. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd ask you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast and leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. That makes us happy, keeps us going. I also want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon, as in this Thursday, Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, the great Casey Brown is on, and it's a phenomenal conversation. So be sure to check that one out. Catch you later.